Our friend Oliver is a campus pastor to students at IUP, and he recently shared the story of leading a Bible study in the lobby of one of IUP's dorms. And a student passed by and blurted out, what are you all doing? And Oliver said, we're reading the Bible together and discussing it. With considerable incredulity, the student said, is this for a class? Is this some sort of a project? And Oliver said, no. We're just curious to find out more about who Jesus is and what it means to follow him. You're welcome to join us. The student's last response as she walked off was, you guys are weird. (laughs) From a secular point of view, it is weird for students to gather together and study the Bible together each week. It's weird for a group of people to gather in this place and worship an invisible God. From a secular point of view, it is weird to read a book written thousands of years ago and call it God's actual word. It is weird, but it's true. Weird from a secular and humanistic point of view, but true and life-changing to those who know the truth that sets us free. Jesus is the capital T truth at the center of the revealed truth of the Bible. Increasingly, I hear people say that they want to know the Bible better. And I also hear people say, how can we know if we have a right interpretation of the Bible? The partial answer to both people is that we need to see the Bible's big picture. It's vital to have the whole Bible in view so that we don't cherry pick a verse here and there, taking it out of context with a man-centered perspective. Next year, as a congregation, we are going to read through the Bible in a year. And next year's sermons will feature what the Bible says about the Bible in order to understand the Bible better. And then also walking particularly through the book of Joshua to see that. The big picture of the Bible is creation, fall, redemption, consummation. And at the center of this big picture is Jesus Christ. This evening, we're going to look at the person and work of Jesus Christ at the center of creation, fall, redemption, and consummation from the opening chapter of John's gospel account. It can be found on page 750 in the blue Pew Bibles, if you'd like to read along. Before we read this word, let's go before the author together in prayer. Our Lord, as we have worshipped in song, we now worship in study. For you are the God of revelation. You are not a God who is silent, but you are a God who speaks and speaks abundantly. In fact, you've spoken so much, it's almost overwhelming to have before us this full record of your revelation and to understand it. For us to understand it rightly, we need you, the one who gave it by inspiration, for us to understand it and hear it now as your word. To that end, we would pray for your Holy Spirit to come at this time and to bear witness to the reading and preaching of your word. To that end, we pray for this preacher in the pulpits, for he is not worthy, and only by your grace is he able. And so it is through Jesus Christ that we pray. 
Amen. Again, page 750 is where we find this gospel account of John beginning. We're going to look at these first 18 verses. Listen to God's perfect and errant word. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. There came a man who was sent from God. His name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light, so that through him all men might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to every man was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testifies concerning him. He cries out saying, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. From the fullness of his grace, we have all received one blessing after another. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but God, the one and only, who is at the Father's side, has made him known. In these verses, we see Christ and creation, fall, redemption, and consummation. The first three verses show us Christ and creation. What are the opening words here in John 1? In the beginning. What are the opening words of the Bible in Genesis 1? In the beginning. Genesis 1 tells us in the beginning, before there was creation, there was God. There is nothing except God. I'm often asked, if God made everything, who made God? And the answer simply is, God is eternal. From everlasting to everlasting, he is God. Kind of a mind-blowing concept. To the skeptic who wants to refuse belief in such a thing, you're stuck with the notion that matter and energy are eternal. For something cannot come from nothing. So either you must believe in eternally existing matter and energy, or you believe in an eternal God. The first is far less plausible than the second. But even more mind-blowing is the fact that Jesus is part of the triune God and is also eternally existing. That's what we read in these first two verses. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. A common misunderstanding of the Bible is to see an Old Testament God of holiness and wrath, distinct from a New Testament God of love and mercy. 
if you don't see Jesus in the Old Testament God, then you incorrectly see God. If you don't see the Old Testament God in Jesus, then you incorrectly see Jesus. Last year, as we walked through the book of Numbers, we saw Jesus all over the place. In the readings earlier in this service, most of which were from the Old Testament, we saw Jesus at the center. God's love and mercy are all over the Old Testament. And in the New Testament, we see that the God of holiness and wrath is the God who pours out his wrath on Jesus so that he might pour out his grace on us. John 1 shows us that Jesus is God. The three persons of the Trinity eternally exist as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And verse 3 particularly shows us Jesus in creation. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. God said, let there be light, and there was light. God said, let there be waters, and there were waters. God said, let there be plants and animals and humans, and there was. God spoke his word, and creation happened. Jesus is the word through whom creation happened. Years ago, I was teaching through various Christmas songs, and I got to Away in a Manger, and I wasn't sure what to do with it. I couldn't even figure out what the title meant. So I called some older, wiser pastors and asked them. And many of them said, you know, I have no idea. And finally came the realization that Jesus came away, far away from his throne in heaven to be born in a manger. And that hymn goes on to saying, the cattle are lowing, the baby awakes, the little Lord Jesus, no crying he makes. That used to bother me because it seems to paint this picture of a baby Jesus who never cries. But of course Jesus cried. He was a baby. Babies cry, right? Moms, dads, right? Babies cry. Of course Jesus cried. He is fully divine, but he was also fully human. Of course Jesus cried. In fact, we read that Jesus wept when Lazarus, his friend, had died. Jesus wept over Jerusalem. God weeps over his people. And so someone showed me creator Jesus in that scene. For here is the infant Jesus looking up from the manger into the eyes of this big cow. And suddenly we see that this one who is in the manger is the one who made these cows. He said, cow, and the cow came to be. And here he is now lying there astonished by that which he himself has made. Indeed, these opening verses show us Christ and creation. Verses four and five then show us Christ and the fall of mankind into sin. In him was life. That life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. I have lost track of how many people have said to me, I would believe in God if he just came and appeared to me. And my answer is, no, you wouldn't. The Old Testament gives us account after account of miraculous manifestations of God appearing and people still not believing. Of visions of God given to certain prophets and people still not believing. 
And then God appears in the flesh. Jesus himself, God in a bod, God in a human body, and not only did people not believe, they murdered him. Light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. We sometimes forget just how dark darkness is. Earlier in the service, we read Genesis 6-5 and that natural condition of man. Every inclination of the thoughts of his heart, only evil all the time. It is the grace of God that affects our inclinations and also restrains us from acting on our inclinations. We also tend to think of evil in terms of bad things done to other people, and certainly includes that. But evil, first and foremost, is rebellion against the God who created us, seeking our own way, our own truth. The original sin was Adam and Eve deciding for themselves what was good, choosing for themselves their own truth and what was right. The original sin was Adam and Eve acting in direct contradiction to what God had clearly commanded. Light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. By nature, we are blind to our own blindness. And though Adam and Eve rejected God, entered into a condition of sin and misery, God determined not to let us remain in that condition, but promised a way out. And we read it all the way back in Genesis 3.15, right after Adam and Eve, their original sin, God promised that an offspring of woman will crush the head of the serpent, and that is exactly what Jesus has done. St. Augustine famously said, the new is in the old concealed, the old in the new revealed. In the Old Testament, the gospel is concealed. In the New Testament, the gospel is revealed. The key to understanding the New Testament in its fullest is to see it as fulfillment of what was promised in Old Testament revelation. And the key to understanding the Old Testament in the fullest is to see that fulfillment in the New Testament revelation. The good news of the gospel, first given all the way back in Genesis 3.15, is fully revealed in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so verses 1 through 3 show us Christ in creation. Verses 4 and 5 show us Christ in the fall of mankind. And then beginning at verse 6, we read of Christ and redemption. Verses 6 through 9 first tell us about the testimony of John. It's not John, the author of this gospel, but the one who's commonly called John the Baptist, who's mentioned several times in the opening chapter of this gospel account. John testifies that Jesus is the true light that came into the dark world. And the word that's translated testifies or testimony is where we get our word martyr. A martyr is one who suffers for their testimony to Jesus. Still today, martyrs are people who suffer around the world because of their testimony of Jesus. John the Baptist, like the Old Testament prophets and the Old Testament events, testify about Jesus as foreshadowing types of what is revealed in Jesus himself. Reminds me of the story of the boy sitting uh, on a park bench and he's got his Bible open, and he suddenly exclaims, wow, God is great. And along comes a young man who had just completed his college degree at a state school and felt very enlightened. And he asked the boy what he's so happy about. And the boy said, do you know what God is able to do? I just read that God was able to part the waters of the Red Sea 
so that the nation of Israel could walk right through the middle. And the enlightened man laughed a little and told the boy, well, with a bit of arrogance, modern scholarship has shown that the Red Sea in that location was actually just 10 inches deep. And so it was no problem for the Israelites to wade across. And the boy suddenly became rather downcast. And he looked down at his Bible, and after a few moments, he smiled again and said, wow, God is great. The enlightened man confused. And the boy said, God is greater than I thought. Not only did he lead the whole nation of Israel through the Red Sea, but he drowned the entire Egyptian army in just 10 inches of water. The Old Testament points to that which fulfilled in Jesus that God is indeed great. Well, verses 10 and 11 reaffirm Jesus in terms of creation and in terms of the fallenness of man, that he was in the world. And though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, and his own did not recognize him. His own people didn't recognize him. We cannot come to believe in Jesus by our own ingenuity or self-enlightenment. So verse 12 gives us the good news of how we can know him. Yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, nor of a husband's will, but born of God. And the phrase that's translated, he gave the right, more literally means he gave the ability to become children of God. It is by grace we're given this ability. You know, as humanity, we often exalt our free will, we sometimes forget that freedom refers not so much to liberty as to ability. You all have the freedom to flap your arms and fly around this room right now. Go ahead, you're free to do it. We have the liberty, but we don't have the ability. So it is that all people have the liberty to believe in God, but not the ability. Those who believe those who receive Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord of lives has been given the ability to do so. The old Puritan pastor Thomas Watson wrote, ministers may set the food of the word before you, carve it out to you, but it is only Christ can cause you to taste it. Taste and see that the Lord is good. It is one thing to hear a truth preached, another thing to taste it, one thing to read a promise, Another thing to taste it. Friends, taste and see that the Lord is good. Christmas time is a time for tasting good things. Taste the goodness of God's grace in Jesus Christ. Salvation is not a reward for the righteous. It is a gift for the guilty. Embrace that you are guilty and that Christ has come for you. This passage shows us Christ in creation, Christ in the fall of mankind, Christ in redemption, and then finally Christ in consummation. Christ has come in glory and is coming again in greater glory to bring all things to completion. Verse 14, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father full of grace and truth. There's a group of tourists that were walking through a picturesque village and they passed by an older gentleman who was leaning up against a fence and one of the tourists in a rather patronizing way said, were any great men born here? The old man said, nope, just babies. 
The greatest of all was born into this world as a baby. The word became flesh, made his dwelling among us. He came in glory. The birth, life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus was the inauguration of his kingdom reign. Jesus sits again on the throne, having accomplished redemption, and that redemption is now being applied by the Holy Spirit, salvation to those who believe, and restoration into every aspect of life and existence. So we now live in a time of the continuation of Christ's kingdom. The news that's reported on television would have you believe that the world is getting worse and worse. Rarely reported by mass media is all the good things that are being accomplished. The media does not testify, but we do. Verse 16, from the fullness of his grace, we have all received one blessing after another. You who have been blessed, testify to that blessing and go and be a blessing to others. This first chapter of John's gospel account builds and builds and builds and explodes out at verse 18. No one has ever seen God, but God, the one and only who is at the Father's side, has made him known. Note two phrases here. First, he is the one and only or the only begotten who is at the Father's side. Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, eternally existing, is at the Father's side. Even now, Jesus is at the Father's side, continually interceding for us as king. And then secondly, this only begotten has made him known. Jesus reveals God to us. The Greek word that's translated has made him known is where we get uh, a biblical uh, interpretation word, exegesis, E-X-E-G-E-S-I-S. It's the right way to interpret Scripture as we read out of Scripture. It's the opposite of eisegesis, which is the tendency we have to read into the Scriptures, to take something and to try and find it in there, as opposed to exegesis, which is to read out what is simply there. Jesus exegetes God. Jesus makes God known. Jesus interprets God, he explains God, he narrates God, he reveals God. Jesus makes God known through the revelation of himself and that is why we as the Christian church point to Jesus. And we go into the world to make disciples of Jesus. Our hope, our only hope is in the person and work of Jesus Christ. The inauguration of Christ's kingdom occurred in his first coming, it's what we celebrate at Christmas. The continuation of Christ's kingdom is the gospel ministry that we're called to do every day and in every way. The consummation of Christ's kingdom anticipates his second coming, the second Christmas, when Christ comes again in greater glory to bring the new heavens and the new earth, the full restoration and the completion of all things. The sureness of what was and what is is the assurance of what will be. Hope is not mere wishful thinking. Hope is what is sure to happen. We simply must wait for it. But we're not meant to wait and sit on our hands while we wait. No one just sits around and waits for Christmas. There's loads of preparation and activity, excitement and celebration. 
So go and celebrate Jesus Christ, the King who has come, and continue to go into all the world in celebration that King Jesus is coming again. And may the truth set us free. Amen.